This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's getting really hot in here. It's so hot. It's Getting Hot in Here is a programme about giving voice to the people in our community working for environmental and social change. The climate emergency is the defining issue of our lifetime. Our aim is to bring you content that helps us understand the climate crisis and explore actions to help us all to save ourselves. How is pink snow related to climate change? Well, scientists have recently observed pink snow on part of a glacier in the Italian Alps, which is believed to be caused by an algae that makes the ice darker, which causes faster melting. This is just one example of how microorganisms can affect climate change. But microbes are also affected by climate change. They exist everywhere. They support all life forms, but not that much is known about how they interact with the climate. So for It's Getting Hot in Here, Laura had a chat with researcher Paul Brody. He used to teach microbiology at the University of Canterbury and asked him to help explain the world of microbes and climate change. Kia ora. Hello, Laura. Good thank, to be here. Thank you for taking the time because this is a very complex world, microbes. Um, they release greenhouse gases. Some of them absorb greenhouse gases. Can you explain the different kinds of microbes and the role they play in climate change? I'll have a go. Um, first, maybe I should say they're hugely diverse, massively diverse. Far, the far more different types of microbes than there are plants and animals put together. And also because um, even though we don't see them in our normal lives, they are hugely abundant. Uh, for instance, uh, some recent work has come up with really big numbers for the, the, the total number of different types of organisms on Earth. So if you take all the plants, if you brought them all together and weighed them, they'd be about 90% of all life on Earth. If you brought all the animals together, and we're more aware of other animals than any other organisms, they'd be about 0.5% of all life on Earth. And what does that leave? That leaves, I think, about 9.5% of the weight of all organisms on Earth are microorganisms. And if you took all the carbon in all the microorganisms and weighed it all, it would be something like 40 billion tonnes. So when, when we're walking around in our normal lives, we go, go out into the garden, we don't see microorganisms, but at least 10% of the life in front of our eyes, if we could see them, would be microorganisms in the soils associated with plants, in our intestines, over our skin, floating around in the air. And similarly, if you went to the beach at New Brighton and looked out to sea, you see all this ocean, you see birds flying above the ocean. If you're lucky, you might see a dolphin leaping out of the water. But what is it? It's something like 90% of the life in the oceans is microorganisms, mm. if you weighed it all. And because there's so many of them, and because they respond very rapidly to changes in their environment, 
they're really important in regard to climate change. But they're not very well studied within the context of climate change, are they? Not as well studied as the plants, certainly, and the functioning of plants. You know, plants function how? In photosynthesis, plants take carbon dioxide out of the air. And of course, we've all heard about growing trees to remove carbon dioxide from the air. But there's a group of microorganisms called algae, which are equally important to plants on land in their photosynthesis. In other words, using the energy from sunlight to combine carbon dioxide with water to make their own food, sugars. So that's what plants on land do, obviously, with their leaves, with chlorophyll in the green leaves, capturing that energy of the sun. Well, these tiny algae also called phytoplankton, which are in the surface layers of the ocean, they do the same thing. They photosynthesize, they absorb carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And then a proportion of those algae sink into really deep water. Not all of them. A lot of them get eaten in the surface waters because, of course, they only live live in the top, say, 200 metres of ocean water at the maximum, Um, because that's the depth to which light penetrates, whereas the oceans on average are something like four kilometres deep. So these algae are growing, the phytoplankton are growing in the surface ocean, they're absorbing carbon dioxide. A proportion of them will die and sink down into deeper waters, or even those that are eaten by little shrimp-like animals called copepods, which then fish eat. Um, They form faecal pellets, waste material which contains the remains of algae. And these faecal pellets, this waste material, also sinks down into the deep ocean. So those are are a carbon sink down at the bottom of the ocean. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that carbon that was absorbed in photosynthesis as carbon dioxide is formed into organic matter, then that organic matter sinks deep down into the ocean, where it will remain for long periods of time. Even if it's decomposed by other microorganisms deep down in the ocean, decompose a bacteria, for instance, deep down there, feed on the organic matter, a bit like in a compost heap in your back garden, and releases CO2. But if that CO2 is down at three, four kilometres depth, it stays there for a long time. So it's taken out of the atmosphere, absorbed, dissolves into the ocean, is used by the phytoplankton to make their food, proportion of the phytoplankton sink, take that carbon down into Mm. deep water. And this has been called the biological organic carbon pump. A pump takes something from one place, puts it somewhere else. So this biological pump involving these really important microorganisms called phytoplankton, photosynthetic algae, take carbon dioxide essentially from the atmosphere into the water, into the bodies, and then deep down into the ocean. So this helps keep the global temperature relatively cool, mm-hmm. removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. If we didn't have this biological carbon pump involving all these phytoplankton, which cover, what do they cover? About 70% of the planet's surface. All the oceans, all the coastal seas have these phytoplankton in surface waters. So if this biological carbon pump wasn't working, there'd be far more CO2 in the atmosphere. I can't remember how much more. It'd be, oh, getting on for twice as much. 
And, of course, the global temperature would be a lot higher. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that the health of these phytoplankton, natural health, health, if you want to use that word, in these surface waters remains good. And these communities continue to function in the way they have ever since phytoplankton first evolved, which quite possibly was about... I don't know, 3,500 million years ago or whatever. So, so what, are, what are the threats to the health of these phytoplankton? Um, well, um, there are suggestions and there is some evidence, although it's a bit equivocal, and this relates to the lack of knowledge of these organisms. There is some evidence that even the amount of warming of surface oceans, which we've had so far, so surface ocean waters have warmed, I think, by about 0.7 degrees centigrade, on average, globally. Doesn't sound much, but that causes the surface waters to warm and they become less dense. Less dense water floats over colder, more dense water. Now, the fertiliser, the nutrients, a bit like fertiliser that farmers put on fields, nitrate, phosphate... This fertiliser, which the phytoplankton need, is down in these colder, deeper waters. And if they don't mix with the surface waters, um, the phytoplankton don't receive as many nutrients as they need to grow. So when the surface waters warm and they float more effectively on the deeper water it's more difficult for the winds to stir them into the colder water below and bring up the nutrients. So there is some evidence that um, on a global scale, phytoplankton growth might have reduced and this could have reduced this biological carbon pump. Also, um, phytoplankton in the ocean has been suggested to influence cloud cover over the ocean. Can you explain that? Phytoplankton live in a salty environment and they don't want salt to get into their cells. So they synthesize in their cells organic compounds which will stop the salt flooding into the cells. And this particular organic compound contains sulfur. So when those cells die or if they get eaten by these little shrimp-like animals and the cells get broken apart, this sulfur compound leaks out into the water. And in the water, it is used by bacteria and the bacteria convert it into another sulfur compound, an organic sulfur compound. It's called dimethyl sulfide. And dimethyl sulfide, a certain proportion of it, can then evaporate into the atmosphere In the atmosphere, the oxygen in the atmosphere turns it into tiny particles of sulfuric acid. And these tiny particles in the atmosphere um, are what are called cloud condensation nuclei. (laughs) Uh, Again, a complicated term, just for a tiny little particle around which the, the droplets in clouds condense. So the water needs a tiny little particle to condense around. And there are billions and billions of these particles in the atmosphere. Most of them are over the ocean would be just um, particles of salt 
because, of course, winds over the ocean cause spray, aerosols get into the atmosphere, you just get little salt particles, and they form these cloud condensation nuclei. We have clouds of sulfuric acid hanging over the oceans? Yeah, in a sense. Um, One comparison is... um, How does that affect climate change, then? Okay, well... The more of these cloud condensation nuclei you have, the more clouds you get. And also, the, the droplets in the cloud can be larger if they form around a relatively large condensation nucleus. So the more clouds you've got, and the larger the droplets in the clouds, as I understand it, the clouds then are more effective at reflecting sunlight back into space. So overall, the idea is... Phytoplankton in the ocean can stimulate cloud cover above the ocean and that causes more of the sun's radiation, more of the sun's heat to be reflected back into space. And again, this could, could be a significant cooling mechanism for, for the planet. Mm. Um, it's it's, it, it's still Yeah, it, it, it is. <laughs> This is the thing with microorganisms, well, and and plants and animals as well. But we're all interconnected, aren't we? Mm -hmm. We're connected to thousands of microorganisms over our bodies, in our guts, in our mouths. Apparently, they even affect our (laughs) behaviour. They certainly affect um, absorption of food through the through the gut wall, Mm -hmm. and it's like that like that out in nature. Just millions and millions of complex interactions which we don't by any means fully understand. And this is the concern with microorganisms in climate change. And perhaps one of the fears is that some of their responses could make climate change more rapid and much stronger um, than we think. Mm. And this really relates to other groups of microorganisms, the decomposer microorganisms Mm -hmm. in particular, on land. Yeah. So we've we've talked a bit about how some of the microorganisms can absorb carbon dioxide and greenhouse ga- other greenhouse gases. So let's talk about those microbes that produce it. Rightio. Here we're thinking primarily the really important ones are so-called decomposer microorganisms in soils. Because, of course, soils contain a lot of organic matter. Where does most of that organic matter come from? Well, it comes from plants. Plants photosynthesize, make leaves, make twigs and branches and trunks, and then they die or the leaves drop. So all this leaf litter and dead branches and whatever falls to the forest floor or grasses die, fall onto the soil, and it becomes organic matter in the soils. So here we're getting into again, what is called the global carbon cycle. If it wasn't for microorganisms such as bacteria, decomposer bacteria, fungi, fungi are very important, a whole other group of bacteria-like microorganisms called archaea, which are hugely important. They were only discovered or recognised, I think, in the 1980s but they're now known to be massively important on the global scale. So they're in soils as well, and another group called protozoa, but particularly the bacteria and these archaea and the fungi. So they use the organic matter from the plants as food, and they decompose it. And again, you think of a compost heap. Mm. 
where you put your food scraps, you put your grass cuttings maybe, prunings from your plants, heap it all up, and the bacteria and the fungi, protozoa, in that compost heap, decompose the organic matter. So the carbon that was in the organic matter gets into the atmosphere again as carbon dioxide because as the microorganisms feed on the organic matter, a bit like us eating a loaf of bread or whatever, <laughs> we're eating organic matter, we use it, we run around and live our lives, and as we're doing that, we breathe out carbon dioxide, which is a waste product of the decomposition, the um, digestion in this case of the food that we eat. And exactly the same with these microorganisms. They eat food, organic food, decompose it, and respire the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now, these microorganisms are very sensitive to temperature. If you had a tube of bacteria um, growing in a culture medium, and that culture medium contains organic food, so it contains glucose, sugar, and you had it at 10 degrees, and then you immediately put it in another oven, culture incubator, at, say, 15 degrees, or even at 12 degrees, 2 degrees higher. Almost immediately, as soon as it had warmed up, those bacteria would um, be more active. They'd feed quicker. They'd decompose the organic matter qu quicker. And the CO2 would get into the atmosphere more rapidly. So one really big concern is that as soils pretty well worldwide over the 30% of the planet that's not under the ocean, um, those soils in general will be warming under climate change and the microorganisms in the soil will become more active and they will decompose more of the organic matter which goes in and the CO2 goes into the atmosphere and you get into one of these positive feedback loops. Mm. And this is the sort of thing that we've really got to avoid um, because more decomposition, more CO2 in the atmosphere, warmer surface temperatures, feedbacks on the microorganisms, they get more rapid again in their decomposition, more CO2 in the atmosphere. And you're in this loop, right. <laughs> things get faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And of course, OK, the globe surface temperatures of the globe on average have warmed about 1.2 degrees so far compared with pre-industrial. But in the polar regions, in the Arctic especially, really let's just concentrate mm -hmm. on the Arctic, I think the warming in some areas is oh, plus 3, plus 4, plus 5 degrees, something like that. So there's much more warming up in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. And this is where... There are huge deposits of organic soils and huge areas, millions of square kilometres, of course, is in the permafrost region in the far north. So as you go deeper in the soil, even in summer, I don't know, below about half a metre, maybe below a few tens of centimetres, depending where you are, these soils are frozen. So as the Arctic warms, these soils are thawing and the organic matter in them is becoming available for decomposition and the release of carbon dioxide. And, and methane too. And methane. And of, of course, this is another 
area of huge interest because I think it's since about 2007, methane concentrations in the atmosphere have started to increase rapidly again. There was a, a period of a few years when they levelled off and now they're, they're increasing rapidly and they're wondering, wondering why that's so. But there is a particular group of microorganisms which is very important in controlling the release of methane into the atmosphere. And these, these are members of that other group, which down a microscope look identical to bacteria, but they're called archaea. A-R-C-H-A-E-A. -A -E -A. <laughs> That's the spelling. Um, and these particular ones, which release methane, are called methanogens. So a methanogen is a methane-forming microorganism. And they only live in environments where there's no oxygen. So permafrost soils, if you get melting, wet soils, it's very difficult for oxygen in the atmosphere to penetrate into wet soils. So wet soils tend to be very low in oxygen. They might even lack oxygen as you go deeper into them. And this is the sort of environment where these methanogens live. So they use carbon dioxide and hydrogen. And hydrogen is released by other bacteria and archaea which decompose organic matter in soils where there's no oxygen, you get hydrogen. So carbon dioxide and hydrogen are combined by these methogens and it becomes methane. And that methane can leak into the atmosphere. And of course, methane is a very strong greenhouse gas. I think, I don't know, something like 20 times stronger than carbon dioxide over something like a 100-year mm. time scale. And it's increasing. Yeah. And of course, here in, in New Zealand, agriculture is, is a main contributor of yes. greenhouse gases. Yes, mm. yeah. Um, and here we're thinking of another very interesting environment when you come to think of microorganisms, and that is the so-called rumen, one of the stomachs of ruminant animals. And of course, New Zealand economy, huge proportion of our economy depends on ruminant animals. So this is cattle, sheep, deer, and I think camels, we, we, we don't depend on camels, but camels are Not ruminants so <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, yes, in, in this rumen of these ruminant animals are these methanogens. And again, what happens, let's take a, a cattle beast. It eats grass. Well, let's go to the grass first. Um, the grass is growing. It's absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere. Cattle eats the grass. Grass goes in the rumen. The cattle are completely dependent on the microorganisms in the rumen to decompose the grass. And some of those products of decomposition are then used by the methanogens, which are also living in the rumen, and they produce methane. And the methane is belched, mm -hmm. not farted, you know, we had all that controversy a few years ago about the so-called fart tax. Mm -hmm. Even the farmers got it wrong then, didn't they? <laughs> the methane's belched out of the mouth of the ruminant, ruminant animal into the atmosphere and contributes to warming. And it, so long as there is a huge global herd of 
cattle, sheep and other ruminant animals, there will be methane in the atmosphere which originates from those, those animals. Mm. Now, Paul, um, speaking of agriculture, what about all of the nitrogen and the phosphorus that we put into the soils? Does that somehow affect the microbial world and affect climate change? Uh, oh, yes, very much so. Um, we talked about the global carbon cycle in which microorganisms are heavily, deeply involved. There's also the global nitrogen cycle, and microorganisms are heavily involved in that as well. In fact, if it wasn't for microorganisms, the fertility of our soils and of the ocean would just collapse because some of them are involved in what is called biological nitrogen fixation. So these ones take nitrogen from the atmosphere and use it to make their own fertiliser. So that they make ammonia, they combine nitrogen with hydrogen to make ammonia, and then, then that ammonia is used to make amino acids and proteins. So they make their own fertiliser. And then there are other microorganisms which have the opposite effect, and these are called denitrifiers. So these take nitrate and remove the oxygen from nitrate, this is called denitrification, and convert the nitrate into a nitrogen compound called nitrous oxide, which is a gas which can leak into the atmosphere. And of course, nitrous oxide is yet again a greenhouse gas, even stronger than methane. So we've already mentioned, I think, methane's about 20 times stronger than carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide is about 100 times stronger than carbon dioxide. So nitrates in soils can be converted into this nitrous oxide, which then can leak into the atmosphere. And agriculture is a major source of nitrous oxide. Now, these microorganisms, a bit like the methanogens, the ones that produce methane, only operate when there's very little oxygen in the soils, or maybe even no oxygen, because they get their oxygen from the nitrate. Nitrate is a nitrogen atom with three oxygen atoms attached. So the microorganisms can grab the oxygen and use it in decomposition processes. So... Where does the nitrate come from? Well, it can come from application of synthetic chemical nitrogen fertilisers to the soil. We put urea fertiliser on our soils. And if we put too much on, that urea isn't taken up by the grass it can be decomposed and converted into ammonia in the soils. That ammonia is converted by microorganisms into nitrate. And then, if the soils are wet and there's not much oxygen, the nitrate is used by these denitrifying bacteria and converted to nitrous oxide. So, 
our fertilizer application can result in nitrous oxide gas getting into mm. the atmosphere. And of course, animal manure in urine also contains nitrogen. Yes, yeah. Well, it's the, another the, load. Yeah, the urea is used to fertilize the grass. The grass grows, animals eat the grass. Um, animals produce urine so that the nitrogen that was in the urea gets into the grass, gets into the animal. Kidneys in the animal produce urea. The urea in urine um, comes out of the animal onto the onto the mm. pasture. So you, you get a wet area of soil, which is very high in urea. Okay, so what, so, what about nitrogen-fixing bacteria? Can they help us reduce these, em these emissions then? Yeah, yeah. That process of nitrogen fixation only, is only, only takes place in bacteria, certain bacteria. And um, where do you find them? Well, most people are aware of um, leguminous plants, peas, beans, clover, clover in pasture. These are called leguminous plants. Leguminous plants have tiny little nodules on their roots. And that's where the nitrogen fixation takes place because the nitrogen-fixing bacteria are growing in those little nodules on the roots. So if you've got some broad beans, say, in your back garden at this time of the year, just uproot one of them, pull it out of the ground with the roots, look at the roots, and you'll see these nodules on the roots. And they're full of millions and millions and millions of these nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So there are natural biological ways using these nitrogen-fixing bacteria of getting fertilizer. They fix nitrogen. That fixed nitrogen, in effect, is fertilizer. It's then transferred to the plants and helps them grow. Now, the remarkable thing is these bacteria fix the nitrogen at one atmosphere pressure and at the normal air temperature, let's say 15 degrees centigrade. When we do this, when we synthesize ammonia using our high technology processes, like they do in Taranaki, you need high temperature, 300, 400 degrees centigrade, and high pressure, 100 atmospheres pressure, something like that. Whereas the bacteria do it at room temperature and one atmosphere pressure. So, and so rather than um, apply urea on the field, just grow broad beans and clover. Yeah, um, okay. have more clover in your pasture, which we used to do, did we not? 30, 40 years ago, um, clover was incorporated into pastures. In medieval times, I think, in Europe and no doubt elsewhere, they used to have rotational crops, didn't they? which included um, a crop of legumes, perhaps, in between then leaving the field to grow pasture on which to graze your animals. So that's another way of getting nitrogen back into the soil, having a legume crop for a season. And there the nitrogen-fixing bacteria working away in the nodules and absorbing nitrogen into the atmosphere, and it gets into the soil as ammonia and nitrate. And then that fertilizes the next crop you grow in the rotation. And I suspect, what, what, what's the um, 
the approach to agriculture. What's it called? Regenerative. regenerative. That's it. Regenerative agriculture will is fully aware of these aspects of um, using nitrogen fixing bacteria. There's also talk about biofuels. Can you explain the yeah, relationship yeah. between microbes and biofuels? Yeah. Um, well, it's yep. Yeah, it's in this case again. It's using the methanogens and. This, this approach is used, well, it's used in New Zealand on certain farms, I believe. It's used in Christchurch at the Christchurch Wastewater Treatment Plant. So the idea here is we use our organic wastes and we use microorganisms to digest these organic wastes in the absence of oxygen. You're getting what you call anaerobic decomposition and hydrogen and carbon dioxide and some other tiny little organic compounds called organic acids are used by the methanogenic microorganisms and they produce methane. So we collect the methane and use it as a fuel. It can be used to heat buildings. It can be used to run electrical generators. And I believe that's what happens at Christchurch Wastewater Treatment Plant. They capture the methane that's um, produced during treatment of our organic wastes and use it to generate power to run the treatment plant. Also in um, countries such as India, Vietnam, China, they, at the village scale they can collect organic wastes. So maybe this is the, um, the wastes of the animals or plant wastes. Put those into a, a sort of concrete tank. It might be concrete or steel. Decompose them in the absence of oxygen. Generate the methane from the methanogens and use it for cooking. Mm. So there you've got a, a biofuel that can be used for cooking. Mm-hmm. which is better than using, say, kerosene, yep. which is a, a fossil fuel. Now, when you, sorry, when you burn the methane, of course, it gives off CO2. But where, where did that CO2 originally come from? Well, it came out of the atmosphere when the plants used it in photosynthesis. So you've got a closed loop. CO2 in the atmosphere into the plants, plants are harvested or eaten, the wastes are digested, you make methane, burn the methane, get the heat energy, it produces CO2, but then that CO2 can then be used by plants again. So the CO2 is going round and round, we're getting a high energy biofuel. In essence, what we're doing is capturing sunlight. The plants are capturing the energy of sunlight, that energy is then released when we burn the methane. Hmm. And microorganisms are making the methane. <laughs> and and there's another example of that cycle, I think, with microalgae and biodiesel. Oh, and using these. Yes. Um, and again, in, in Christchurch, uh, NIWA, National Institute of Water and Atmosphere, were heavily involved in a trial, again, out at the wastewater treatment plants. There were these large shallow ponds constructed. So you use shallow ponds and you stir the water around these extensive shallow ponds 
And in the ponds, you have your wastewater. It's all the wastewater coming from our houses, from, I don't know, restaurants, cafes, industry, whatever. It contains lots of organic matter. goes into these ponds. It's decomposed. It re releases nitrogen and phosphorus. And then the algae, you use microscopic algae, which take up those nutrients, take up the fertilizer. They grow very rapidly in these shallow ponds because um, they get lots of sunlight in the shallow water. And you get mass growths of the algae. You then harvest the algae. So you get what's called biomass of algae, solid <laughs> lumps of algae, which can then be converted into a biofuel. Now, converting it into a biofuel does need energy. It needs heat and it needs pressure, as I understand it. But then you get something like um, a, a product that resembles diesel fuel. So one suggestion is that maybe that diesel fuel could be used to replace a fossil fuel sourced diesel. So it could be a replacement for fossil fuels. But th th this isn't going to solve our problems. It's only going to be a relatively small scale industry, quite probably. Mm. Microbiomes, they are good for the climate and they're bad for the climate. Oh, yes, ab absolutely. In which um, way are we going? Well, as I said, the fear is we could go the bad way. And we haven't got the knowledge really to predict whether that's going to happen or not with these positive feedbacks, say, with, with regard to more CO2, much more CO2 being released from soils or methane from permafrost, melting permafrost areas or the reduction in the biological carbon pump perhaps in the oceans, meaning more CO2 is left in the atmosphere. Our climate models, you know, these really complex computer models that they use to try and predict the future, do not yet include enough of these biological components of these global carbon cycles, which have such an influence on global climate. Mm. So our predictive ability isn't yet there. So... In my opinion, surely this is a really good reason for following the so-called precautionary principle. So what do we do? We act as strongly and as quickly as we can to reduce our production of um, CO2 from fossil fuel use, mm -hmm. maybe change our diet so we don't use as much meat and dairy so we reduce methane emissions, do that, and hopefully, hopefully, we will avoid getting into these positive feedback loops, which, if they become strong and active, could completely take us in the direction we don't want to go. Mm. And then it becomes pretty much uncontrollable. Yeah. That, that's the shock horror story. Mm -hmm. But, but it, it's just another reason for doing the right thing, which, if we act quickly enough and strongly enough will provide us all and future generations with perhaps much higher quality lives than we would otherwise have. And in the meantime, study these 
little microscopic critters. Yeah, yeah. and try and more. understand better what they're doing and try and come up with, yeah, why not, innovative technologies using microorganisms which can benefit us and help reduce our use of fossil fuels. But biofuels from microorganisms will be part of it, but only part of it. Yeah, it won't solve the problem by any means. No, but, but no one action is going to solve the problem. We, we need actions in all these different areas. What is it? It's sort of um, slices of a cake sort of approach, isn't it? And we, we've got to produce the full cake from all these little slices doing as much as we can in as many different ways as possible. And microorganisms will be in there for yeah. sure. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your expert knowledge of Ooh, the microbial thank world. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to It's Getting Hot In Here on Plains FM. If you want to check out the podcast, go to the Plains FM website. Many thanks to everyone who helped make this program. I'm Laura Gartner. Thank you for listening. Mate wa.